0: Well, have you ever had a situation where you see someone in public and they act like they don't see you because they don't want to introduce you to their friends? Or maybe they just don't want their friends to know that they know you. Maybe that just happens to preachers. I don't know. But... I remember when I was a youth minister up in Kentucky and I had this one student. He was a middle school student. And man, he was a tough guy. He was a three-sport athlete, gifted athlete, football, basketball, baseball. And when I became the youth minister, I think he was probably about seventh, maybe eighth grade. And I remember that he would, I would see him out somewhere and then he would make eye contact with me and within an instant, I mean a nanosecond, he would turn that head, turn that body and he would like be moving a different direction because it's like I do not want to acknowledge the youth minister to my friends over here. And I was youth minister long enough to see him through those middle school years. And I praise God that one year uh, after Winterfest, he and his younger brother chose to be baptized into Christ. But it didn't change the fact that he still wanted to have the cool persona. And so part of that cool persona is, I don't acknowledge my youth minister when I'm out in public. That was just one of his hang-ups. And I didn't take it personally. I remember, I I would kind of just internally laugh about it. You know, because it's like, dude, I know you saw me. You know, I I know, you you know who I am, you know, it's like, and so, but I chose not to ever call him out or embarrass him, Uh, you call him by name and make him have to turn around and shake my hand or acknowledge, you know, it was, he was kind of the exception to the rule, the rest of them, you know, it was a handshake, a hug, uh, good to see me, introduce me to their friends, but there was that one guy who just wanted to like keep me kind of at an arm's length. And uh, I remember uh, when, even one time when when uh, I guess I was had moved into the preaching role. By then he was about a sophomore in high school, and uh, that high school, Glasgow High School in Kentucky, was a lot like Lewis County when it came to football. Uh, It was never questionable whether they would make the playoffs. They were in the playoffs every year. It was just, is this are they going to get knocked out in the second round, the third round? When is the season going to end? And I remember messaging him one night because, man, I'm telling you, this guy, there are people that hit in football because that's what you're supposed to do. There are people that just like it. I mean, they just... And I remember messaging him one time and said, you know, do you tell people after you knock the taste out of their mouth that you love them with the love of the Lord? Because, I mean, he he played strong safety and, I mean, he could just pop people just one of those guys that could lay the wood as as commentators might say but as tough as that kid was and I knew that he appreciated me his dad was one of our deacons and he would tell me what his son would say about me at different times some of the things that I taught in class and things so that would get back to me but He always wanted to kind of keep me at an arm's length in those certain situations. And the reason I bring that up, church, is because Paul was dealing with the very same thing. When we get to 2 Timothy, this is widely believed to be Paul's last letter that he wrote. And it's very likely that he was in a jail cell at the time he wrote it. Probably a Roman jail cell. He mentions in this passage, you're going to hear in just a moment or read in just a moment, that he mentions being a prisoner. Sometimes with Paul you never know if that's, if that's literal or if that's figurative language. But we believe that it's probably literal in this situation. And of course, what happens with people who are in jail? I, you know, nobody goes around saying, saying, "Hey, you know, I got, I got relatives in jail." You know, glad to meet you. You know, it just doesn't happen. People usually aren't excited about their, the people that they know that are in jail. Now, this past Sunday morning, when one of the guys from Hope Center stood behind that very pulpit. You know, part of what I asked him to say was, you know, tell them, tell them where your family is. Tell them where you come from. Rockcastle County, Kentucky, which to most of y'all, to maybe all of y'all, that doesn't mean anything. But Eastern Kentucky is known as rough, Okay. If you ever saw the show Justified that was on years ago, that was set in eastern Kentucky. And so, and so he hailed from eastern Kentucky. And he hailed from a place where life was rough for a lot of people. And so I asked Chase to specifically talk about the fact that he had family members in jail right now. And if they weren't in jail right now, they had been. And so Paul is experiencing this, this idea that some people who were partners with him in the gospel had now deserted him. And so you hear these words in 2 Timothy 1. Let's begin with verse 6. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. "...which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Rather, join me, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God." Let me read that part again, church. But it is verse 10, but it is now, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has, what church? Destroyed death. Aren't those awesome words? Okay, that was an amen opportunity, church. All right. I'm going to put those words together again. You don't see them often in the English language. Destroyed death. Amen, church? Yeah. He's destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. He's making it clear, folks, that he's in... A jail cell for the sake of the gospel. Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to be put in jail for the sake of the gospel? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. I used to think that in my lifetime that would never become a reality. I'm not quite so sure anymore. And I mean that. I plan to be around. I don't know what the Lord plans, but I plan to be around at least another 30 plus years. I've seen the landscape of America, the landscape of religion in America, change a lot in my lifetime. You have too. And so, I don't say that to be negative this morning. I say that to be realistic this morning, to be real, to be honest. There may come a time even here in the United States of America, that some of us are called to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Verse 12, That is why I am suffering as I am, yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And church family, the title of this morning's message is Guard the Good Deposit. Now, Paul writes these words and... He is kind of shedding light on something. Because we, we can realize today that among some in our society, the word Christian doesn't represent a good thing. To some in our society, Christian represents something negative. It's somebody who might be narrow-minded. It might be somebody who is judgmental. Some would say, oh those Christians, they are so hypocritical. And so, we have to realize that there are going to be times that if we act like a child of God, because it's one thing to be a child of God, right church? but to actually act like a child of God especially in the face of social opposition I saw a Twitter post this week where someone had a a group of people were, were praising something in society and somebody responded I always tell myself Greg don't read the comments Don't read the comments. But then what do I do sometimes? I'm drawn into reading the comments. And so, uh, there was somebody, a prospect of the Nashville Predators. Somebody who may not see the ice in Bridgestone Arena. Who had come out as gay. And so... People were saying, wow, that, that takes a lot of courage. And then, you know, they, there's all kinds of positive and encouraging comments. And then somebody said, I'm surprised at all these positive comments based on what the Bible teaches. Now, if I'd been standing next to that guy and we'd been having a conversation and he said, I'm thinking about putting this on Twitter, I'd have said, don't put that on Twitter. You know, it's just not going to, nothing, you know, it's not going to go well. And so, but, but he does. He, he felt, I think the guy probably felt convicted to bring Jesus into that thread. And so immediately, now my curiosity is aroused. Okay, how are people reacting? Well, there was no positive comments to that. People, person after person... Said, you're a hypocrite, you are you're narrow-minded, you have a very narrow reading of scripture. Now, as I preached here on a Sunday night back when the Supreme Court made their decision to legalize gay marriage, I said, It's not going to affect any of us. It's not going to hurt us. And I made the, the point. And I still make that point today. That for anybody who says about homosexuality, well that just makes me sick. I say, that's okay if homosexuality makes you sick. Just as long as lying makes you sick. And just as long as gossip makes you sick. Just as long as... And fill in the blank. Just as long as lust makes you sick. Just as long as adultery makes you sick. Because it's easy for the Christian community to say, okay, I'm going to choose that one sin that I've never been tempted to commit. And I'm going to hold that sin up. And I'm going to let that sicken me. But then I'm going to ignore all the other sins under the sun especially those that I'm guilty of committing now see that church does make us look like hypocrites it does when we give sin a hierarchy when we pick and choose nothing gives us the right to hate anyone else Now, Romans chapter 1 is very clear about homosexuality. How it is not part of God's plan, God's design, God's intention. And I, in my lifetime, have known people that were gay. And I made sure they knew that I loved them. Didn't compromise my Christian beliefs. But I made sure they knew that I loved them, that I didn't hate them. Now, they also knew where I stood on that. So, there are times when our society is going to soften in certain areas. There are times when we as God's children will be encouraged to soften in certain areas. And that we have to say, no, That's not right. Doesn't mean we hate people. Doesn't mean we picket or protest. After all, we're not protesting or picketing, lying and gossip and all those other things, right? If you're going to protest one, you've got to protest them all. But Paul is dealing with this situation where he is in this Roman jail and he knows what it's like to have people who have abandoned him. As a matter of fact if we read on from where I stopped those next two or three verses what we see is he names a couple people. Hey this guy and this guy you know used used to care for me used to be partners of the gospel. They have abandoned me. But then he raises up the name of one person who has stuck with him. And we read that in uh, beginning in verse 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Anisiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains." On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. And so Paul gives some detail there. He says, Timothy, you know this guy and you know this guy. Man, they're nowhere to be seen. But this guy... Now that's what it looks like to be loyal. That's what it looks like to have the courage of your convictions. Not only did he not turn his head the other way, but when he was in Rome and knew that I was in jail, he kept looking for me. He kept looking for me in that big city until he finally found me. And church family, that's the kind of loyalty that we are called to have for the gospel. That we are to be people who value the gospel. Value. Have you ever had a safety deposit box? You go rent one at the bank, you sign some paperwork, they give you a key, they warn you that if you ever lose the key there's a price to be paid for them having to go drill out that lock and and put in a new lock, right? And i got to say, I've still got a safety deposit box in Kentucky, and I don't know where the key is. So at some point, it's going to be cheaper to go and pay the fee for having the thing drilled than to keep paying the rental price every year. Uh, at some point, I'll get around to taking care of that. But right now, trust me, that stuff is three hours away, but it's real safe. Okay? And so, but what do you do? You put the stuff in there that's valuable. You want to protect it from theft, you want to protect it from fire. Some of the best heist movies ever made have to do with safety deposit boxes. And somebody going in through the floor of the bank or something like that and bypassing all the alarm systems, yada, 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 and, and then get out their big drills and they start drilling into these boxes because they're looking for a specific box because they know there is something super valuable in that particular box. And so Paul is saying that you, you guard this. The gospel, that good deposit. He's talking about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you guard that. You guard it like it's your absolute most valuable possession. That you guard that. You go to the safest bank in town, and you rent that box, and you put it in the in the plastic or metal box and they slide it back in there and then they, they close it and they've got a key and then you've got the other keys it takes two keys to open the thing and you guard it no one can steal it it can never burn or be destroyed it's tucked away behind those two locks and behind that vault That's how valuable the good news of the gospel is. Not only are you not ashamed of it, but that you guard it with everything you've got. And so that begs the question, what really is the gospel? We call it the good news of Jesus Christ. But this same author, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, defines it very clearly here. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. In other words, I passed it on to you and made sure you knew this was the most important thing. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And so Paul even starts naming some of the people that he appeared to. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to James. And then he appears to to the other apostles. And this is likely James, his brother, not James the apostle. James is named among the apostles, I think, there. And so, Paul's point is, this is what is of first importance. That Jesus died for our sins, that he was raised on the third day. Paul goes on to say, And then he appeared to me as one who was abnormally born. Talking about that his conversion was a bit unique. Blinded by a light on the road to Damascus. Had to be led into the city. And after a number of days, the scales that were on his eyes fall off and he's able to see again. And then he accepts Christ as Lord rather than crucif excuse me, rather than persecuting Christians, he decided to convert people to Christianity. Paul has a testimony like no other, but church family, I wanted this lesson to piggyback off of the joy we experienced last Sunday morning that we all have a story to tell about what Jesus has done for us. What the Lord has done for me. What the Lord has done for you. And church family, as our society will slowly erode. And again, I don't say that to be negative. I say that to equip you for when you see that if you haven't already. That you see society around us eroding. And things that were once not acceptable then become more acceptable. And things that you wouldn't have seen on television, then you find yourself seeing it on television. Many of us have already experienced that in our lifetime. And the society that we live in, that we might have once thought was often built around our Christian faith. That we are outliers. We as God's children become at some point the exception and not the rule. That we find ourselves sort of becoming the minority. And so then you will find a lot of Christians will downplay their Christianity. A lot of Christians will be Christians on Sunday morning in the great gathering of the saints but Monday through Saturday there's not a lot of courage to their convictions and Paul says back there in 2nd Timothy 1 that God did not give us a timid spirit verse 7 2 Timothy 1, For the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. We are not called to be timid about our faith. The Spirit God gives us, Paul makes clear here, is one of power. It is one that says, I can endure whatever suffering I have to endure. I can endure whatever kind of ridicule I have to endure. I can endure whatever kind of criticism that I have to endure from someone else for me being the child of God that I'm called to be and having the courage of my conviction. The courage to say, no, I draw the line there. That's not right. We're called to love God and to love others, and others means all others. But that doesn't mean that we compromise our faith. So church family, let's go into the world this week. Let's feel equipped. Let's feel confident That we are God's children. That we are dearly loved. And church, when the time calls for us to take a stand for our faith, let's not be timid about that. We don't need to look angry. That doesn't get us anywhere. But we need to be confident that we are children of God. And that God calls us to live by a certain code. And if you wonder what that code is, I would start with Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you can live out the Sermon on the Mount on this side of glory, you're doing great. Church family, may God help us to be those people. People who do not accept a spirit of being timid, but know that God's Spirit is one of power and that that power should give us confidence in our faith. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet accepted the gift of that Spirit, that Spirit of power, that comes through proclaiming Christ as Lord and putting on Christ in baptism. And so we offer the invitation and sing a song to give you the opportunity to accept that greatest gift to all of humanity. If you're with us this morning and there's something else that you would like a body of believers to be supporting you with in prayer, then we offer the invitation for that reason as well. Let's stand and sing. Hayden.